0: This is the Luke Thomas Show podcast. You can listen to the full show weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156.
1: Today on the Luke Thomas Show, I'm going to weigh in on John Jones versus Dana White, but from a new and maybe unusual angle, we're going to talk to Roosevelt Roberts after his big win on Saturday night. Plus, we're going to look at fighter pay, both the high end and for the rank and file, and we're going to demonstrate The proof is unequivocal, they don't make enough. The Luke Thomas Show airs weekdays at 1pm East Coast time right here on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156 and don't forget about the mailbag, LukeThomasShow at gmail.com. I hope everyone is doing well. It was a crazy night here in your nation's capital last night. It was nothing but ambulance sirens and the wearing of helicopter blades all night long. That was unusual, huh? (laughs) uh i'm fine my neighborhood's fine uh the president actually came to my neighborhood today for uh whatever he was doing but um everyone here is okay it was just it was just weird it was weird you ever go to like sleep and hear nothing but i mean on military bases you hear that kind of thing all the time but yeah that was unusual that was not normal so you know i'm not gonna i'm not gonna wade back into the weirdness of it all i think everyone kind of has a pretty keen sense of it but Did not get the best sleep ever. I'll put it that way. Um, Let's start the show here on an interesting place if we can. What I mean by that is an unusual place. Now, we're going to have a conversation today about fighter pay, how to determine it, you know, what John might be worth to the UFC uh, in terms of his absence, like what that might do to their matchmaking, like in a world where John Jones doesn't exist, to what extent does MMA move on and how, right? We'll have those conversations. We we should just have another conversation, though, to start the show about what seems to be quite obvious to me. And I think it's obvious to, certainly, certainly I think it's obvious to the UFC. I don't know if it's obvious to the fighters themselves, and I don't know if it's obvious to people who care about their issues. I don't really hide my viewpoints. On this show. It's not really what the show's about, right? The show's about sharing it. It's got my name on it, after all, right? I mean, the least I can do is be candid with you. I think John Jones is almost exclusively, not entirely, but I think almost exclusively in the right here. Whether or not you think he's deserving of 30 or 20 or 15 million, certainly I think there's a totally fair debate to be had about that. That he has paid uh, enough, or that he has paid rather what he has earned, in my judgment, I think is. pretty obvious he has not. And I take his side in the idea that not only has he not been paid enough, but there is a piece out today by John Nash that piggybacks off the work of an economist who goes by the name of Paul Gift, who has done some work specifically in fighter pay, has done some academic work to show Everybody wants to pay attention to the plight of the person who barely gets by as a fighter. And certainly I understand that, right? Their cause is, in many ways, almost more immediate, right? Because they're living hand to mouth. And there's so many of them. There's very few of the top draws. There's many more in that middle to working class sort of sector of the fighter pay economy. So getting them more money is obviously a bit of a more urgent need. But if you're talking about who, who does not um, receive what they generate in terms of aggregate dollars, the most underpaid in that sense would be the top stars. They, they are totally underpaid relative to what they generate. Now, we'll have that conversation a little bit later. All of this is just to say, that's my opinion. I think the facts completely support it. The evidence is very clear. Fighters in general underpaid and then specifically the top stars. They receive more in aggregate dollars, but they receive less in terms of what they generate. Here's the thing, though, and you're noticing this more and more. We had Sean O'Malley on the show last week saying, listen, if the UFC wants to be to fight better guys, you're going to have to pay me. We had Demetrius Johnson saying, listen, if you want me to go to Bansomweight, you're just going to have to pay me more. We had Henry Cejudo retiring, right? Pulled from the rankings, the whole nine yards, giving up his belt. And him saying, you know, Dana knows my number, quite literally my phone number and my dollar sign number, if he wants me to come back. And now we've got John Jones basically saying, listen, you know, what is it worth it to me to fight a Jan Blahovich at this stage in my career, given everything that I've done? It's going to be a hard camp, probably, you know, a harder fight than normal. And I'm going to get paid, what, a decent salary, but relative to what I think I've earned, not not enough. It's just not worth it to me. Um, I I think I, I understand and sympathize with a huge majority of that. There's just one problem, I think, with all of it that needs to get internalized here a little bit. I don't think the UFC is going to blink on this today or maybe ever. In other words, if you are a top end fighter and you believe that you are entitled to more money, you've got my support. However, if you believe that sitting out in some kind of boycott is going to force the hand of the UFC... You are very much wasting your time, completely wasting your time. Now, it might budge them a little bit if you take enough time off and there's enough fan momentum and some kind of energy emerges for a particular matchup. At a particular point in time, they might come back to you with marginally more money. And certainly they'll come back to you with a lucrative opportunity where even if they don't change the terms of the contract, the opponent will generate more interest and about probably more money than normal. Right. In terms of just the overall aggregate dollars, because there'll be more pay-per-view buys. Right. They might budge a little bit on that over time. But even then, we're talking, I think, a marginal difference. We're talking a long time off. And in terms of like really structurally changing how they do business, it ain't going to work. These boycotts you see these fighters doing, if that's what their real aim is, to boycott, they are destined to fail. Now, if they're taking time off like Henry is, or at least we assume Henry is, because, hey, I want to go do other things. I don't really want or need to fight right now based on my values and goals. I don't mind sitting out all this time. If they come back to me with a decent offer a year or two down the road and I can take that, that's worth it to me. I'm doing this for me and not so much for my for my financial benefit, but for my personal life benefit, for my quality of life in terms of uh, experiencing the other things outside of fighting. If they want to do it in terms of moving away from the octagon for those reasons, then I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I mean, there's nothing wrong with what they want to do in general if that's what they really feel like is best for them, I'm just here to talk them out of what I think is a losing strategy to affect change. If you want to take a sabbatical for reasons unrelated to financial compensation, A, they're certainly entitled to it. B, I recommend it, probably for mental health reasons. But three, I will say, this is not a strategy to get them to budge. Dana White was asked, I think, in the Canadian press about—this was on, like, Monday—about John Jones and what he had said. And and Dana's response was, yeah, listen, he's probably made enough money to retire if he wants to retire. And you can say that that's him doing some kind of public-facing response to not show a willingness to bend. It's probably true. But here's the reality. All evidence has shown over time they're not going to bend. Or if they bend— it's after a lot of time has passed and they bend marginally. They might bend a little bit down the road, you know, something they might work out for you when it really also benefits them to a dramatic degree, too. But this whole idea like I'm gonna force their hand and I'm gonna get them to just go running, you know, to their attorneys to to pen new language on a new deal, yo, know, that ship ain't coming. It's not going to work. It never really has worked in the UFC. It's never really going to work with UFC. All the evidence that has come out of this fighter lawsuit in Las Vegas, this class action lawsuit, all of it pretty clearly shows that they try to keep, and they have been very successful at it, fighter compensation at a fixed level. Fixed percentage, right? So the number goes up as they make more money, but it's a fixed percentage. 20%, and that includes fighter compensation of USADA, year over year. That's it. That's the number. And the better part about it is if you look at how they generate money, the UFC's business model used to be a little bit volatile with pay-per-view and other non-contracted forms of revenue, or at least the contracts themselves weren't as big. Now, if you look at it, they have international deals, broadcasting and otherwise, all over the place, which has fixed contractual revenue. They have fixed contractual revenue now on pay-per-view plus gravy on top. They've taken the volatility out of their business. It's all contracted, and it's a huge amount. They can get more if they are really high performers, but you get the idea. They didn't budge back when it was volatile, not much. They're going to be even less inclined to budge now. Every fighter can only look after themselves in the end, and I understand that, and I get the logic of using the only leverage that's really available to you. Completely understand it. It's a natural human response. But this is the key. I also notice that every fighter does everything other than the thing that will work. The lawsuit may or may not work. We'll see. Federal legislation may or may not work. We'll see. But those are paths towards real actionable change if you can make it work. And then the establishment of a union. Those are your only three paths. Federal legislation... Uh, a lawsuit that could lead to a union or some other series of outcomes or the organizing effort of a union itself. Other than that, if you want to take a sabbatical, take a sabbatical. Your choice, you're right, you've earned it. I recommend it in many cases, but that's not a path to change. And all these fighters who sit back and think, even in the great John Jones, who by Dana's own admission is the greatest fighter ever, They think that that is enough leverage to compel them to change. Dude, he didn't blink for an instant. Yeah, you know what? He treated it like when when Misha Tate was upset about how she had been passed over and whether she wanted to retire. He didn't change his tenor from that at all. They have built in a system where they are not going to be leveraged. Not very much. Very, very little. And individual actions... Uh, uh, even by proven draws like John Jones proven talents like John Jones who still has enough time in his career we think to have some huge fights dude ufc will not be leveraged over that and so if you want to say last thing on this hey man i want to take a break from fighting cuz i just don't want to do this kind of thing anymore who could who could take it away from you you know who could do that Fighters need to just wrap this, wrap their heads around this. They need to really fully absorb the weight of this. Real change only happens from the things that all of them have been avoiding, the active ones anyway. You got to get on Capitol Hill and you got to lobby. You got to be a part of that lawsuit or you have to help organize those efforts or sign your card and encourage everyone else to do it. That is it. Other than that, your train ain't coming. Doesn't matter who you are. Doesn't matter what you've done. Conor McGregor might be the sole possible exception. And even then, he couldn't get the shares uh, of ownership. He couldn't get a a share of the live gate. Even he has been restricted. What chance does anybody else have? You want change? You got to go big picture because everything else is just a personal vacation
0: this week on world of basketball director of USA basketball Jerry Colangelo joined the show and spoke about how Kobe Bryant set the tone for Team USA during a scrimmage ahead of the 2008 Olympics.
1: First day of uh, of practice. First day we're going to scrimmage. The ball went up. Loose ball. Pete dove hit first almost into a wall, it seemed, actually, was the score statement, setting the tone, and that set the tone for us. If Kobe's going to die for a loose ball on the opening play of a game in practice, that was his work ethic.
0: New episodes of World of Basketball are available every Thursday on the SiriusXM app, Pandora, and Apple Podcasts.
1: Let's go to the phones now and our hotline with our guest. As I mentioned, this dude was, I mean, when you look at this fight, he was literally better than his opponent in every phase of the game. I was very impressed by it. Curious to see what's next for him. It's the one and only Roosevelt Roberts. Hi, Roosevelt. How are you? Hey, what's up? How you
0: guys
1: doing? good, man. Uh well, first of all, congratulations on the win. You got to be thrilled with it. And as I've been saying this whole time, dude, when I was watching this fight, I was like, I don't think Brock Weaver ha- can compete with him in any dimension of this game. At what point, I mean, I mean, I'm sure you went in there with the confidence that that was true, but at what point did it reveal itself to you in the fight that like this was absolutely yours to lose?
0: Um, man, I just I, I just uh, as soon as the fight started, um, uh, I just knew I, I, I seen that I was faster, um, and I already had it in the back of my head that if we go to the ground, that my ground game is going to be on point. Um, I, I've been rolling very tough, um, so I already, I already knew that in a lot of different ways that I was going to bring them a lot of problems. Um, but I, I, thought, I thought, you know, me personally, I thought that it was going to be more difficult, but, you know, as the fight was progressing, I, I felt more comfortable and relaxed. I was, okay, you know, everything is you know, falling into place.
1: Fair enough. All right. So let's talk about the game plan here. What did you think? What what was the plan with this guy when you guys were strategizing what you wanted to do? Are you the guy who like has a sort of a detailed plan or you a bit of a more of a feel it out type?
0: No. Yeah. More just feel it out. I mean, we, we try to game plan, you know, my coaches tell me what to do. Um, Tell me, Hey, you know, maybe we should work like this. Throw, throw this kick a lot. Um, Throw that punch a lot. But no, I mean, once we're in there, you know, we just, we, we we just, whatever happens, you know, we're just, we just want to make sure that we're ready for whatever happens. So, uh, it was no really set game plan. It's just more stuff that, uh, he just wanted me to throw a little more of and, you know, do, do like certain things, you
1: know. Fair enough. Um, okay. So, where would you, where do you, where do you think you are in your career, right? I mean, you had the one a drawback against Vince Pichelle and he's a tough customer in 2019. Mm-hmm. You had two nice wins since then, since then beating the veteran Alexander Yakovlev and then just running over Brock Weaver. That gives you 11 fights to date, 10 and one record. Like when you sort of size yourself up, where are you? No, well, I think i might. I think I might get, uh, and at least I, you
0: know, at least one more, one or two more fights to become the rank man. Um, you know, I think that one that one fight with Piché, I think you know, it's, it like it's setting back just a little bit. But um, I think if I just keep, if I just keep doing, going in, and doing what I'm doing. I think definitely like another fight or two, I definitely should be able to at least be either ranked or have a ranked opponent fight. You know, um, so I think I'm heading in the right direction. You know, you know, I'm think everything's going forward. Um, you know, slowly but surely, we definitely gonna get there.
1: Yeah. I- Okay, so how fast could you get back out there, right? Because I mean, there was barely a scratch on you this time, right?
0: Yeah, barely, man. I mean, you know, I got, I got a little, got a little couple, a couple bumps and bruises, man. Um, but now nah, I mean, I want to get right back out there quick, man. Um, you know, begin I want, I want to touch, touch the, uh, touch the Octagon again. Maybe like uh, beginning of July, you know, beginning of August. Like just, just somewhere around there, I could, I could do it again. Uh, right now, I'm gonna take some time off. Uh, well, I'm gonna take like a couple of days off, go see my kids in Miami. So I don't think I uh, will jump right back in there June, but I, I definitely want to get back in there in July, July August. But I, I want to get her up and get a quick turnaround, keep my name out there, keep building myself, um, you know, keep making money.
1: You know, Roosevelt, one, uh, when I watch you compete, you're clearly you know one of the more talented guys that um, in terms of up and coming guys that I've seen in, in some time. And, you know, you're out there in California competing. So I get that, you know, California has so many things to offer in terms of, um, high level training, but you just mentioned you're from Miami. How come you didn't end up at MMA masters or American top team or freestyle fighting Academy? What's the story that drew you to California?
0: Man, I mean, um, to my you I start, I just started my career out here in California. I never really uh, had a MMA dream in Florida. Um, but the reason, the reason I do, because you know that, that, you know, sometimes you know, I, I want to go back to my kids. You know, I want to, you know, I really love my kids. And being in a whole different state from them really messes with me. So you know, sometimes I, um, I think about, like, think about that. But honest, truthfully, honestly, um, I can't, I can't leave my coaches, man. My my coach Adam and Thomas Cronin, they brought me so far. They put in so much effort with me, um, putting so much time away from their family and stuff like that. That I can't, I can't just go pick up and go start with somebody else. Now that I'm at this level, now that I'm at this level, you know, I want to stay with the people I'm with, the people that got me here, the people that actually believe in me, and uh, you know, I want them, to, I want them to prosper with me. You know, when I want to build them up as coaches, just like they're building me as fighters. So um, yeah, I think California, did my whole MMA journey, I think is going to be right here in California with my uh, same coaches that I started with.
1: So I don't mean to pry. I've been a new father for about a year, so I'm always curious to see how different fathers do things. You're away from your kids. Um, what, what, what is your life like in terms of your family? It sounds like is back home in Miami and then your professional life is out there in California. How do you, how do you balance the two in a, in a month or in a calendar year? Like what's, the, what's the, what's the process? I mean, uh, well, me
0: and my, me and my mom, we we separated a lot ago, like two years ago, but, um, uh, like you know, it just it just you know we do we do the best we can you know we are uh, great co-parents and, I mean I, I I go see my kids all the time they were just out here for like uh, five months um, you oh, know wow. before they were starting school we kept we kept we kept them um, back six months here and they go six months there um, so it was like she had them and I have them but since they started school now they're going to be down there a little longer. But I always go see my kids. You know, those are my pride and joys, the reason why I changed my life and um, the reason why I'm even chasing this dream that I'm on right now. And it was because of my kids that gave me that ambition, you know? So, uh, yeah, I mean, we, we may do what we can, man. I mean, don't get me wrong, it's hard, man. You know, I was there every step of the way with my kids. I was there from when they were born. Remember remember their first steps, their first talk, their first words, everything, first time potty training. Mm. Um, so, you know, it's hard, but, you know... Uh, you know me. You know me and your mom. We we got a great relationship, and you know we're just doing the best we can as parents right now.
1: I hear you, man. Believe me, I, I certainly respect the hustle. Hey, do your kids watch your fight?
0: Yeah, finally, uh, hmm. my, my daughter, my daughter, my my son, my she said that she had him watching it, and my son wasn't really worried about it. He was all like. Uh, he was all, like, nonchalant about it. But my daughter, she said my daughter was into it. Like, yeah, me and dad, oh, great job. Oh. Like, you know, <laughs> like, she she like, my daughter was really into it. Uh, and this is the first time they really actually, like, sat down and watched me fight on TV, you know. Um, so, yeah, they was pretty hyped about it, you know? They actually yeah. want me to come down so they could talk about it. Every time I talked to, talk to my daughter a couple of times since the fight, and she's just been going crazy every time we we're on the phone. <laughs>
1: you know what's funny man a lot of people uh i I think inside the fight community we all know this but i think people outside the fight community don't really understand this mma or excuse me i should say this miami is i mean the miami area across all the demographics right from the for the different you know latin nationalities the cubans the puerto ricans certainly the african-americans the haitians it produces a ton of fighting talent, and they, they go all over the country. Some stay there, obviously, right? But why is that? Why do you think Miami is such a hotbed for you know the folks who come out of there? They really end up as, in many cases, very successful—not just MMA fighters, but boxers too.
0: Yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, it's a it's a um, Miami man. Uh, like just South South Florida in general uh, brings out a lot of. Top athletes, you know, football, basketball, like we have a lot of like, like not even just fighting, but like basketball, baseball, like we have a lot of top athletes come come down there, and I don't know, man, I, me personally, I just think, and no, no just know, just know, like this no, this no, like disrespecting the other state or anything, but I just think like we're, we're just bred different, man, like like we're just we're, we're hungry down there, man, you know, not not too many people come from anything down there, man, we're trapped in the box, like so, all, everybody has that talent, everybody has that. That raw skill, that raw like, you know, that that they could be good, great at whatever really they put their mind to, as long as they just chase it. Um, yeah, it's definitely been like that, man. I, I definitely think me being raised down there and born down there is definitely a big reason why I am who I am and why I like to bring myself so far now. Um, yeah, man, Miami man, we're in, we're in a place, man. I can, I can never forget that, never get uh, down there. Cause they definitely brought me up.
1: Do you go home with uh, kids aside, right? Seeing your kids is always great, but when you go home to Miami, what kind of feeling do you get about Miami? Like, do you miss it in the sense of um, gosh, I wish I was still here. Or do you, do you sort of say, um, you know, it's a cool place, but, and it, and it made me who I am, but you know, you don't miss it in that kind of sense. Like what, what kind of relationship do you have to, again, not the individual family members, but to the place at this point.
0: Yeah. No, every time, every time, every time I get get down there, man. You know, going down there when I'm on the plane going down there, I'll be like, oh man, I'm about to go back to Miami. Like damn, it, I'm about to be back down here in this fucking, in this fucking bullshit again. But then when I get there, I'm like, damn, man, I miss it. Like I, I miss being here. Like I see my people, see my homies, see everybody I grew up with. Smelling that humidity, that 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 humidity in the air, like the beaches, like, you know, I miss it. Like, every time I go back down there, you know, it's hard, and it's hard for me to leave, like, leaving, leaving, getting there, and being there, it's hard for me to get back on the plane and come back to California. Because, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I got so many emotions there. I I drive down the street, I'm walking down the street, and I remember, like, doing that as a kid, or I go to the park, and I remember when I was sitting in this park, or I remember when I was doing this in this neighborhood, or doing that over here, or when I lived in this neighborhood. So, yeah, it's like, you know, that Miami, that's always going to be my home. That's always going to be the place that I love. Um, always going to be the place that I look at and be like, you know, you know, I love it here, but, you know, I just can't be here right now. That's just how I look at it. I look at it as I, I love it, I miss it, but right now my life is somewhere else and this is where I need to be.
1: Yeah. Fair enough. It's, it's a, it's a, it sounds like, you know, it's just the inevitability of life. It's, it takes you to, to different places. Roosevelt Roberts joins us here uh, on the Luke Thomas show. Now, Roosevelt, you're what? 26 years of age. How old were you when you went to California?
0: Man. So I went, I went when I was 17, but then I wow. went back when I was 18. Um, I went back to Florida when I was 18 and then I came back when I was nineteen and then I just stayed ever since. I was like, yeah, this I ain't no place to like there's no reason to go back. So I've been down here ever since. Uh boy, I've been up here ever since and yeah, have just been working, grinding your hair.
1: Yeah, you boy. certainly have. Hey, walk me through that chest tattoo you have. What what, what is the story there?
0: Man, um no, I'll just Fourteen years old out there running the street doing a crazy life and uh it's crazy like I remember exactly the day I got the tattoo. Me and my homies, we just did some some stupid ass stuff. And then we was all just sitting down talking and um yeah, we were just all right, There they was talking about they gonna get a tattoo and my, my homie at the time, he had a tattoo on his chest and then I was like, damn bro, I want a tattoo and he's like, oh, I'm going to take you to the guy. So, you know, I went, and then they asked asking what I wanted, and that's what I got. So every time, like, I look at this tattoo, you know, it, like, to to a lot of people, you know, it's like, damn, that's the fucked up tattoo, which it is a fucked up tattoo. I, I agree with that. But, uh, you know, this tattoo, te- it means a lot to me. It, it, it means, it, it reminds me of who I was, and it reminds me of the person I used to be, of the mentality, the way I used to think, and what I'm chasing, you know, what the, the life that i can 't go back to, you know, so when I look at this tattoo, it like it gives me a sense of pride, a sense of okay you you was doing this, doing that, you was living this life, they wouldn't have thought you would make it, and now look how far you came now now look, now look where you are at in your life and remember where you was in your life, and you just it's like just it 's basically just a reminder to me to keep pushing forward and keep grinding, you know
1: fair enough, last question on this, Roosevelt, and this might sound like a weird question, but i I see different prospects, and let's let's assume for the moment that everyone works just as hard, right? Just as many hours in the gym, you know, just as much effort towards diet, and, and all that kind of thing, right? And no distractions in their life. Some of the fighters are going to be more technical than the others, and that is partly due, of course, to natural ability. It is obvious to anyone who watches you compete, you have a lot of natural ability married with hard work. But there's a certain degree of craftsmanship in what you're doing, that appears very obvious to me, right? Like, there's, a, there's real technical precision. So here's my question. When you train and you think about getting better, obviously getting better in a general sense is what everyone in that game that you're in is after. But do you ever think about, like, I want my game to be technically pretty. I want my game to be... I want to be as much of a detailed craftsman as I can. When you train, is that a concern for you? Mm.
0: Yeah, you know, you always want to be technical, man. Because, you know, the, the more technical sound fighter is the one that's going to be more sharper the one more looking a little more clean. Um, but nah, really, when when I go when I go in there, I just want to make sure you know that I just keep learning that like I make sure I soak everything up. Um, I don't really be like, oh, I want to make sure I get this kick like perfectly down the middle, or like I want to be able to throw this right hand right from the shoulder. You know, um, I just got like, man, you know, I just want to I want to be able to be quick, be fast. Um, you know, be technical in the sense but also have that wildness to me um to where like i could I could get out of stuff or like throw a crazy punch, you know um yeah, so it's really it's really what I think is really just how you feel your fighting style should be. I think I'm technical, but when I'm in the gym, I don't think oh, I need to be technical, I just mm. feel like um oh i I need to probably just straighten this out just a little more so it don't be so so I don't round it off, you know so right. um. Yeah, I think I think I think it's really just whatever you feel like your fighting style would be. If you feel like you wanna be technical, then when, of course when you go in the gym, when you spar and when you hit pads, you're gonna to try to be very like very clean and very like tech like throwing your punches straight. But if you just go in there and be like, Hey, you know, I'm I'm finna learn this and put this in the arsenal, I think you know, you're gonna figure it out and put everything together.
1: All right, let me use your technical mind then. You're a lightweight, yes? So uh, your weight class. It looks like Justin Gaethje is going to fight Nurmagomedov. Who wins that contest and why?
0: Man, honestly, man, the way the way I seen Gaethje, the way I've seen Gaethje fight Ferguson, I, I would think that Gaethje will win. Um, I know Gaethje is a D one wrestler. He was a D one wrestler, right? Um, yes. I think he was. Yep. Yeah. So I, I think I think Gaethje actually holds a lot of um, problems for Khabib because. You know, Khabib, he's like, he been rocked, but I don't think he ever been really hit by somebody like Gaethje. Uh Gaethje hits hard, and he comes forward, you know. So I think it's going to be a great fight. You never know, though, because Khabib, once he gets his hands on you, I don't really think it matters if you're a good wrestler or not. I think he's just that overwhelming strong that he could, he's going to get on top, get you down, and, you know, really nothing you can do. But uh, I, I think Gaethje got it, though. Me personally, I think Gaethje's going to do it.
1: Well, We're going to have to see Uh, Roosevelt. You are on your way. Good, sir. What a hell of a win for you on Saturday. You made it look effortless, even though I know it's not necessarily that way, given all the hard work that goes into it. So congratulations on your win. Keep growing. 26 years old. The future is very bright for you, and we appreciate your time today.
0: Thank you for having me. Appreciate
1: it. Yes, sir. There he is. Roosevelt Roberts. Keep your eye on him trust me when I say that he is very 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 technically gifted. WWE legend The Undertaker. I have tried my hardest to protect kayfabe honestly just within the last couple of years I mean I would cringe when I would hear people you know like we're doing now like talking openly about behind the scenes stuff it would just like I, I'd grit my teeth and this I think I was the real last holdout to, to kayfabe. Listen the Busted Opens interview with WWE legend The Undertaker on
0: demand now via the serious xm app. Just search Busted Open Interviews, now free for most subscribers.
1: Luke Thomas Show, welcome back. Now, Cobb and I were having a conversation yesterday about pay, right? Like, what the criteria is or should be. Not really, actually, let me let me correct that a second. Not what the criteria is for a fighter to get paid. What the criteria should be for a fighter to get paid. 877-FIGHT93, 344 four eight nine three and it's so funny that we did that last night because today and we were not planning on this to be clear two pieces have come out in mma media that give us a sense of um what they're up against and what a roadmap might be at least for certain situations so there's two pieces are one the athletic it, which is the, uh, subscription service that has Ben folks and Chuck Mindenhall and Josh Gross and Fernanda Proches and, uh, Sean Elshadi and Ch- Chad Dundas. And I'm probably leaving somebody out, but you know, they got all those people. They, uh, did a survey of 170 fighters. I think many of them and most of them, UFC, including former title holders and then championship contenders. And they looked at a lot of different things, like how much money they made and, um, you know, and what were some of the largest purses and how much did they lose to like managers and teams and blah, blah, blah. I want to go through that in just a second. But the other piece that came out was from John Nash over at Bloody Elbow, who did a piece on what John Jones is worth. And I've indicated previously in the show that you the evidence is quite clear. The most underpaid fighters are the biggest earners at the same time, which is to say fighters like Connor and like John and like previously GSP they would generate a certain amount of wealth for the UFC which they can prove and the share of that that they got was pretty low here's how they know that there is something called I'm not going to get into all the details there is something called the marginal revenue product called the MRP MRP the way it's explained is that it's the additional revenue created from the addition of one unit of input. Now that sounds a little bit too jargony, but let me explain what that means in real terms. Say someone is hosting a concert festival and they want to sell 10,000 tickets at 50 bucks a piece, but then they book a classic rock band and that leads to an additional 5,000 tickets sold. That band's MRP, their marginal revenue product would be $250,000, right? And if the promoter, then book, let's say, a pop singer or something that led to an additional 20,000 tickets being sold, that person's MRP would be 1 million, which is $50 times 20,000, because that's the amount of additional units you pushed by virtue of what that other person brought to the table. So it was the addition in this particular example of the music acts that led to the extra sales, they should receive the majority of that MRP, Right? The same should hold true for the fighters. Now, Paul Gift is the economist who wrote a paper on this called Moving the Needle in MMA on the Marginal Revenue Product of UFC Fighters. And it, it really asked this question. Here's what they found. The vast majority of revenues that the UFC has generated comes from a very small number of fighters. And the compensation that these top fighters received was a fraction of what they had added to the company's bottom line. According to Gift... 509 fighters had appeared on pay-per-view cards between January 1, 2006 and March 3, 2008. It was the top 44 who had earned, on average, 8.5% of their MRP. 8.5% of what they measurably bring to the table. I hope that I hope that, that sinks in for everybody. 8.5%. He also found, Paul Gift, that a very small number of fighters in very few fights generated a large amount of additional residential pay-per-view revenue. About 5% of all fighter bouts added $5 million or more in residential pay per view so people buying pay-per-views at homes. And about 1.5% added $10 million or more to the event's revenue. This means that during the time period looked at, January 1, 2006, March 3rd, 2018. Approximately four fighter bouts a year during a typical 13 pay-per-view year would add at least 10 million in residential pay-per-view. So the question is, what about Jones? There's a lot of math that goes into it, but here's what we know in sum. Um, The summary for him would be, let's see, let me pull the numbers up here. Uh, okay. That means the total earned by Jones, the, the additional, excuse me, that's what he's being paid. Sorry. Um, the UFC has estimated that the high, I'm sorry, I've lost my place here. He has generated, I want to see this here very clearly. He has, oh, here we go. Um, he has generated, uh, a significant amount of money. To the point was to the point where um, the difference he was entitled, he made, let's see. We don't know exactly what he made for the two Cormier bouts, but we know this. The maximum he could have been paid for both of them total together is 12 million. Do you know what his MRP was for those two fights? 50 point eight. Right? The amount he generated in the totality in 2012 to 2017 is MRP as measured. Do you know what it was? In totality, 108 million. Now, we don't know exactly what he made. We don't know what he made. But here's what we know in terms of the specific number. We know that the maximum he could have made, and he probably did not make this, the maximum he could have made on an MRP of 108 million is 32 million. That's the maximum that we know he probably could have made, and the chances are it's much less than that. So, so here's the reality about this when it comes to fighter pay it's the ones at the top who are the most underpaid because very few move units, and the ones who do tend to move a lot. This whole argument about John Jones doesn't draw like Deontay Wilder is just, it's, it's buffoonish in how idiotic it is. It's so obviously true. He not only meets that threshold, but exceeds it in a huge number, well, far beyond what Deontay Wilder has produced as a, as a revenue generator, as an MRP, uh, as somebody who's even been in the same space for crying out loud in terms of pay-per-view it's, it's absurd So this is the first part of the conversation. The first part of the conversation is taking this measurement, the MRP, right? What do you bring to the table beyond what they ordinarily already get? We can affirmatively assert that the fighters are underpaid and Jones in particular, Boxing, culture, lifestyle, the Yak and Barack Show.
0: Floyd Mayweather a while back was kind of discrediting young fighters that are calling Manny out. And that's what Floyd's about. That's why Floyd fought Conor McGregor. Because it's business. It's about making the biggest payday all these fighters want to fight each other but there's a reason they call him out manny and you can't blame him especially after the win he had against keith thurman man it's a business man it's prize fighting
1: weekdays from noon till 3 eastern sirius xm fight nation channel 156 luke thomas show we are back we're talking about fighter pay on on what level it should be based what what like you know what are the what are the systems and the and the what are the criteria that you would establish To get fighters paid okay now we talked about the upper end of the echelon with john jones and what he had earned and something called marginal uh revenue product mrp and we had learned that you know the guys generated about 108 million dollars beyond what the ufc would already have generated and he has been compensated about for 32 million of that at the highest end but it's probably significantly lower. That's, that's, that's the If you are being generous with the math, the most he could have gotten is 32, but probably less, okay? So do the math on that, right, in terms of what these guys are actually getting paid and what what should go into it. I have been saying it all along. The people who, they make more aggregately, the Conor McGregors, the GSPs, the John Joneses, but in terms of what they generate versus what gets returned to them, It's not, the equation is messed up. It's unbalanced. It's not where it needs to be. And again, people can call this hating. I don't think that it is. I think this is an informed conversation about what people are entitled to for their, for business people's lives, man. Right? They're putting their, not just John Jones or anybody else, they're all putting their health at risk, making sure that they are properly and fairly compensated. I don't, I don't really think that that is an unfair discussion. I think we have to have it, and you can disagree if you'd like. Eight seven seven fight ninety three, but it's not. It's not. This is not a Yo Mama contest. We're trying to understand where people should should be in terms of their financial compensation for the for the labor that they offer, and for the revenue that they generate. Okay, so with that in mind, though you can talk about the higher end of the spectrum all you want. That's not really all that relevant for the majority of fighters. So good enough and helpful enough is the athletic who did a piece on a survey of, I think 170 plus fighters uh, and how much they made um, in different ways. And here is what they come down to. This is your rank and file. So they asked, who has made forty-nine thousand or less, fifty to ninety-nine, a hundred to two hundred, and then two hundred and up? Okay. So forty-nine or less, that could be all the way from like you know five hundred dollars to a thousand to two, blah blah blah, up to forty-nine thousand. Forty-seven percent of fighters. That's our highest career payday to this point. To fifty to ninety-nine thousand, the highest career payday is uh, 23 percent. Who has had a highest career payday of 100 to 200? 21 percent. How about 200 or more? Nine percent. Nine percent is that? Uh, uh, can only claim that's their highest career payday to date out of 170 active athletes, which, by the way, includes people who are the Ultimate Fighter championship contenders, the whole nine yards. All right? Okay. So that's one consideration about what the distribution looks like. The majority of it, nearly half, is $50,000 and less, and 10% get uh, 200000 and up. And who's to say if it goes even to the millions? I mean, obviously, that's for certain fighters. But you get the idea there. Not, not, not a ton that's happening. So that's part of it. The other part is what the percentage is of what they keep. And the article goes into great detail. It will vary fighter to fighter. Some, the camps, take a certain amount and that can vary. Some, the camps and the managers and the trainers take a certain amount, and that can vary. Um, some don't Some don't take a, a cut of the purse. They just take a flat fee every year. So it's not a function of what you earn at each event, right? So it can vary. But what they found is that fighters can lose, in certain cases, up to 80% of their check just on these costs alone. So here's what they found. Percentage of payday kept by fighter, 50% or less, 17%. So nearly one in five keeps half of the check or less. 50 to 60 is 15%. 60 to 70 is 18%. Luckily, 70 to 80 is about 30%. That's the highest number. 80 to 90 is 15%, and then 90 or more is about 4%. So the good news is most fighters, or I should say, it's not most because it's not a plurality, but the largest group of them uh, is going to be in your 60% and up. So that's good news, but suffice to say, you still have almost 30 percent that keep 60 percent uh, or less, and then nearly 20 percent that keep 50 percent or less. Now, if you add in non-U.S. fighters when they come to compete in the United States, or in certain cases, um, you know, fighters who go abroad and then you know they go fight in Brazil, and then Brazil takes a cut, and then they come back and have to pay taxes. So when you go and travel, non-U.S. fighters have kept only 61% when U.S. fighters have kept 72%. So here's another little thing. UFC likes to be a global sport in MMA in general, and that's a good thing, right? It's good that we have a global sport. The problem is when a lot of these fighters are trying to accommodate the promoter, whether it's UFC or Bellator. It's, by the way, it's not just UFC. It's Bellator too, who's listed here, and they have to go travel internationally they are getting double hit. So when their purse comes up and they make 250K, you're like, wow, it's pretty good. But remember, at most, they're going to keep around 60% of that. And that's just the average. So we're going to keep even less. So when they have to travel internationally, they take yet another hit. How about the high earners, the ones who get you know, $100,000 or more each time? What percentage do they keep? It turns out the more you make, the more you have to spend. So 50% keep uh 20 uh, excuse me 50% or less key, uh in terms of how much they keep from the 100,000 is 20%. 50 to 70 is 37% which is the highest group. 70 to 80 24, 80 to 90 18, and then 90 or more 2%. It's basically unheard of. And the way they're able to make that work is merely by virtue of some won't have a manager, they'll just pay a lawyer to look over their contract or they'll have a manager but the manager won't necessarily take a part of Um, you know, the fighter purse. It'll be some other form of compensation that they generate there. It's things like that. So all of this adds up to what kind of conversation it adds up to what you have to wrap your head around is from flying out coaches, um, which by the way, the most promoters Beltor and UFC pay for one coach and one cornerman, which often is just the same person. So you have to fly extra coaches in. you have to pay for your medicals, Oftentimes, you have to fight overseas. Uh, You have to pay taxes sometimes in two different countries, certainly in your own location where you are. Um, You get half your purse taken away for losing, which is sort of not universal but fairly true across the board, which is a problem. And uh, the pay structure isn't high enough. So here is one solution that I have in understanding fighter pay. Uh, I don't think you could saddle the promoter with all of the medical costs. I don't think that would necessarily work or that they would go for it. But what I do think is if the overwhelming majority of fighters have only made 50000 or less, simply just raising the floor on fighter pay Would get you to a, a, a better position. So whether that's a share of streaming revenue, whether that's a share of the gate, whether that's a share of the television contract, whether that's just greater sums of money with fewer contracts to hand out, I don't know. But what we're coming away with here is you can make $80,000, 40 and 40 to win. And if you have to travel overseas and you have to fly out your coaches and you have to pay for medical, you're going to end up in many cases with just 20 grand. That is putting too much cost on the fighter to bear. There is too much being asked of them up front with too little on the back end. There has to be, I would argue, a, a near doubling of the purses. For anyone 100,000 and down, and I would even argue probably for 200,000 and down. If only 9% of fighters have ever made 200,000 and up on a single purse, right? And that's, that's, that's the gross. That's not the net. Something is deeply, deeply wrong. If you want to saddle them with the cost, that's fine, but it should be defrayed by the rest of it. So I would recommend, number one, I think if you're making anything less than 100 it probably needs to be doubled at a bare minimum. Number two, um, I would argue that getting rid of show and win is absolutely critical here. I think that might go a long way. The reintroduction of sponsors. This was the funny thing about the Reebok deal to begin with. We haven't really talked about it on the show. UFC is, Dana White is suggesting it could, the deal could go away at the end of the year. The one benefit to the system before they had the Reebok deal was not merely that the fighters in a vacuum could make more money. The issue was this. If you're going to pay fight purses that don't look that impressive, put the burden on the sponsors to pick up the rest of the slack. Right? Because that way you just offset low fighter pay and it doesn't come out of your pocket. And in fact, they were still collecting, you know, a tithe on this just to get the right to sponsor a UFC fighter on their trunks, you as a sponsor had to pay $100,000 annually just for the right to sponsor someone. And then, of course, you had to pay the individual fighter, whatever the cost was, to get the placement on the shorts or blah, 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 blah. That was a simple way to defray costs for the UFC, and they got rid of it. And that was the part that was like, to me, is like kind of crazy. It's like, if you want to go the Reebok route, you got to replace what you took. The only question about the Reebok deal that I have is, however much money all these folks were making beforehand, did you replace it? And we now know that to be in no way, shape, or form the case. I don't think the fighters would have given a good goddamn about what they're wearing if the money stayed the same. But it didn't, and that was the problem. So now you have low fight purses, you have it broken up over show and win, they have all these upfront costs they have to bear... Plus taxation and travel, depending on their perspective, either non-U.S. fighter or fighter going to a non-U.S. territory. And now the sponsor part of it has been dramatically impacted. When they talk to fighters and they ask them, what is your concern outside of COVID-19 these days? about your life. What, what is your biggest concern? And, you know, it's like health and safety related to training, some kind of an accident that could, you know, derail your, your professional and obviously your personal life and blah, blah, blah. All the things they cared about. You know what the number one was for all of them to a man? Fighter pay. Folks, what is it going to take on this show or any other for me to get it through to you? Not to you if you already converted, to the skeptics that the fighters don't make what they're supposed to and it's not even close. And you don't get to say, I think they should be paid more, but. The only thing I want to hear from people who think that the fighters should get paid more is how much and what the mechanism is. That's the conversation. Because we are talking about a group of people who today don't make what they're supposed to by virtually every reason to consider going forward, won't make what they're supposed to, and have heretofore not made even close what they're supposed to. It's not okay. It needs to change. Whether it's John Jones or whether it's rank and file, the share of revenue to the people putting the most on the line with health and safety, taking the most risk to their lives, is not enough. Last thing on this, why is this so important? Folks, this is what we owe them. In life, you aren't owed very much. It's true, you're not owed a whole lot, right? Mostly life is about what you make happen. And so, I know fighters don't like to complain. Great, I do. I'll do it on their behalf. If these folks are going to develop these kinds of skills... We're talking the upper echelon of the professional uh, you know, ladder, if they're in the UFC or Bellator. And they're going to risk the kind of quality of life and you know, uh, other issues that they have in the pursuit of this occupation. The least we can do is pay them what they have earned. The least we can do is not force them to go check to check or deny them the rightful millions that they have generated. To me, that seems like a fair part of the bargain. If you're willing to do X, we should be willing to pay Y. That, to me, is the arrangement. Because at that point, if they want to take the risks and they want to have these kinds of issues and deal with this kind of an occupation, well, at that point, you know, you did what you could. They were, they were well compensated. I understand it. But if we're not even willing to do that, something is really wrong with the industry.
0: Catch the Luke Thomas Show live and in its entirety weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. On Twitter, follow at L Thomas News and the channel at MMA on Sirius XM.